You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and the Irish, as we've said, have a very long history and tradition in Canada. And for those of us in central Canada, it, there's a big awareness of the 1840s, 1850s, and going back even to the 1820s uh, and around that period. But the Irish connection to Canada goes back to the 15 and 1600s, much deeper than we're very familiar with in Ontario. And, of course, that's to Newfoundland. And the Irish used to come and fish off the Grand Banks. And uh, as is the case when people traverse a large body of sea, they're prone to winter or settle down where they are, and some don't go back. And that's for many of us, and that has been the case the Irish for many years. We've been coming and not going back. Well, the town of Tilting in Newfoundland, Labrador in Canada, is struggling to retain its Irish identity. And Tilting is a community on the eastern end of Fogo Island, off the northeast coast of uh, Newfoundland. And it was incorporated as a town before becoming part of the town of Fogo uh, through an amalgamation in 2011. And um, John Carrick Green, he was born on, uh, in Tilting. He grew up in Tilting. And he's a graduate of Memorial University in the 70s. And uh, he has written... Uh, many books on history and one short story book. John is here with me. And John is going to tell us a bit about Tilting, some of the background, growing up, the experiences and how things have changed. John, thanks a million for coming along and sharing some of your memories and history. Well, uh, thanks, Austin. It's a thrill to be here and even greater thrill to know about Irish radio, which I play every day <laughs> to others' great annoyance. Tilting, uh, as you see, say, is my home. And even though I've been away for a while and living in Ottawa now, I still call it home. And uh, Tilting is a, is a unique place for a number of reasons. One of them is uh, because of its very sharp and very coloured Irishness. It's uh, unique in its, in its Irishness because the Irishness pervades uh, the entire social, economic, political and cultural spectrum in Tilting. And it always has. And we still brag about it that so much today that I have warned people that sometimes it verges on Irish racism. So you have to be very careful. <laughs> uh, we had a, um, a teacher come to as a, an example, Austin, from uh, Northern Ireland in the 1960s. He was recruited by... Uh, school board. He belonged to Ballacastle. I'm sure you know where that is, up by uh -huh. the Giants Causeway in the north. And he was a wonderful man. He became my bosom pal and friend. And he said to me, he said, I just can't get over, he said, how much the tilting people brag about being Irish. And he said, it's wonderful to see because I don't see it any place else. And he said, they don't mind doing it. And not only do, do they not mind doing it, uh, Austin, but tilting people always refer to tilting when asked by outsiders, where are you from or where is it? We always say, it's an Irish village in Newfoundland. We never say it's a Newfoundland village. You say, it's an Irish village in Newfoundland. And that pervades tilting culture to such an extent, Austin, you'll be alarmed and amused to discover that when we started to emigrate to the United States in the 1880s and 90s, the uh, forms people had to fill out at the border at Vanceboro in Maine Greens and the Burks wrote down from Tilting and the other immigrants to the United States. They wrote down Irish. And it's still the same way. <laughs> so, John, you have the name Green. And I know 
I think Foley is a very predominant name. Yes. What are the names that are, you mentioned Burke, what are the names that would have been around Tilting? I said there are two unique things about Tilting, if, if you can have more than one unique thing. The second <laughs> thing was it's uh, early origin in Newfoundland because it is a very early 18th century settlement. Records are not plentiful enough today to tell us precisely when it began, but uh, in the area of uh, north of St. John's is one of the earliest uh, uh, settlements, the earliest out of eventually what were to become 1,500 settled communities, tilting sands in a top dozen for age. So it was begun and settled by Irish and English uh, fishermen sometime after the War of the Spanish Succession, which ended in the 1713. We can't pen it down exactly, but we know it was already settled by 1728. And I'm still hoping for a miraculous search uh, finds to discover its precise founding. Mm-hmm. And the names of the people, the early names, Irish people were Houghton, Wally Kerman tells me is a court name. I'm sure you know Wally. Burke, uh, Foley, Brian, uh, McGrath, O'Keefe, Lane, Kelly and Johnson were the earliest, early 18th century settlers and names of the 18th century. I can bring in more yeah. from the later 18th and early 19th if you wish. The names I'm hearing would yeah. be South and Southwest names and even some Western Ireland names. But I always understood that the big migration was from the Southeast being Waterford. And that's probably over because I know when you get down to Bay Bulls and down on the Irish Loop, you have Hearn, you have Power, you have O'Brien, all which are Waterford names. Yes, uh, just about everybody from Tilting came from Wexford, Waterford, Cork, South Tipperary, Southern Kilkenny, and a bit from Kerry, maybe one or two families from Kerry. Right. That's it. Now, uh, I'm talking here, Austin, of the early migrations, 18th mm-hmm. century and early 19th century, due to the fishery. Mm-hmm. But there were other migrations of Irish to Newfoundland, which is not popularly known, but which I have discovered in my research. By 1840, the Irish emigration of which we just spoke ceased, came to an end entirely. But by 1850s, Newfoundland was undergoing a a boom, you may say, and there was a labour shortage. And the big government project was something like the Rideau Canal, except it was a 20-mile trench to provide fresh water for the city of St. John's. The government formed a committee that went to Dublin to recruit labourers, and that's where they came from. A substantial number of people came over in 55 and 6 and 7. And they are the ones who were working in, under the most absolutely miserable conditions in a, in a very tough terrain, dug the trenches by hand for over 20 miles from what the pond was called, 20 mile pond now called Windsor Lake, to provide fresh water for the city of St. John's. And almost all of them stayed in St. John's and married, uh, leading to some people saying a few times, my answers sisters were from Dublin. And somebody said, ah, oh, it can't be. I, nobody came from Dublin. They're all from the southeast and the southwest. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. where they came from and how they got there. We all know that Newfoundland is known as the rock. So digging a 20-mile trench was not an easy task. Austin it was as tough as digging the Rideau Canal, which, of course, the Irish did, except that the hot conditions produced malaria 
like diseases in the Rio Valley, River Valley, and killed a lot of the Irish workers. And, of course, it didn't happen in Newfoundland. The worst pest was a, a nipper, as we called it. <laughs> nipper. <Right. laughs> Just bit you. Yeah, that was a formidable task. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you were saying then there was a third? Uh, yes, uh, uh, there was indeed a third uh, wave of immigration, or trickle anyway. Uh, by the 1850s, 60s, the Hudson's Bay Company on the coast of Labrador decided they could no longer depend on what they call Indians for the work, the labor, as well as the office work, which they needed in their stations along the entire coast of Labrador. They were a pretty big operation on the Labrador coast. They had an office in, I think it was Belfast or someplace outside of Belfast. I forget exactly. Hudson's Bay Company superintendent on the coast uh, mailed to him, and I saw the mail and said, we need you to recruit a large number of workers. We need laborers and office workers. And uh, I think he said that the best place to get them would be in Donegal and Mayo, who were famous as hard workers. They recruited a significant number of people, and they settled on the Labrador coast where their descendants live today. Population yeah. tilting now is around 250. And at its peak, what would the population have been? Well, its peak uh, would be around 500 plus, you know. Uh, but that's only a part of the story. Uh, tilting uh, was located on prolific fishing grounds. Right. Perhaps the most prolific fishing ground on the coast of Newfoundland, with the exception of the Grand Banks, so a couple of hundred miles offshore. Uh, the result was that Tilting Harbour, from the very beginning, after all its shoreline space had been taken, Tilting Harbour was subject to literally an invasion of fishing schooners in the summertime. It persisted down to my own times in the 1950s when we were little boys. We loved to go aboard the schooners. We could walk across our harbour. There were so many schooners in our harbour. In fact, there were so many visiting schooners that it produced a number and provoked a number of serious incidents. It was solved when the fishing natives of Tilting decided to move all their boats and schooners to the inner harbour because there was no room in the outer harbour. Our harbour formed, formed of two pieces. It's like cutting an egg in two. One half the egg is in the inner harbour and the other half is in the outer harbour. And so the natives had to vacate the outer harbour to make up space for the visiting schooners. And they made some deals to keep the peace between them. So Tilting's population boomed in the summertime. It, it absolutely tripled. In fact, many women in Tilting found their husbands on those schooners from the early 19th century right down to the 1950s. And where would those schooners have come from? Mostly came from the south, Bonavista Bay. Okay. But some of them came from uh, other communities on Fogo Island and a few communities on, in Notre Dame Bay, our own bay. But most of them came from the Southern, as the old people used to call them, down Southern. <laughs> so other parts of Newfoundland. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. My understanding as well as I, that there was some retention or survival of the Irish language around Tilting. Oh, well, you see, because of, I told you about the dates of uh, Tilting founding, and at that time, of course, Ireland was still pretty much Gaelic speaking mm -hmm. and continued to be so until the great changes came around 1790 and onwards, you know, with the loss of Gaelic. So our original people were Irish speakers. And uh, a considerable amount of the Irish language uh, words survived into our own time and survived to today. And I still use some of them, uh, Irish words. I mean, uh, one day, uh, it was when uh, uh, I was doing uh, gardening and fencing, and I had to dig up a big rock, you see. And 
living in surrounded by residential areas, I was, I was uh, puzzled for a little while. What shall I do with the rock? So I noted that just a few miles from me, there was a new residential, new construction area taking place. And all I had to do was drive for 10 minutes and I was on the highway leading to it. I took my teenage son with me. Got him in the car, and as I started to ride along the road, I said to him, Now, Ron, I said, I'll drive, uh, I'll move over to the shoulder road. You see that ditch there where the construction work going? I said, You take that rock and pass it out into the ditch. And he said, What? I said, Pass that rock out in the ditch when I'm driving by. And he said, Dad, there's no such word. <laughs> but that's one of the words that was still using. What other words can you recall that would have been in use? Amadan and all right. Amadan. <laughs> <laughs> We're familiar with Amazon. Yes. <laughs> I hope nobody will call us. <laughs> and my mother used to say to my sister, she said, for God's sake, will you dress up right? She said, you're looking at Canal Street. You'll put some decent clothes on. Get yourself in order, will you? <laughs> A street, you know. Then at school, given how small the community was as a total yeah. community, I presume you were looking at a, what, a two or three room school. We got a two room school for the first time in September 1945. Okay. That's the day that I started school. Right. It was considered to be a considerable achievement to have a two-room two school. <laughs> right, because that meant you had two teachers. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. It was very difficult to make any progress with the system, two rooms, you know. Was only the fittest survive, I suppose. I don't know how fit I was, but I guess it's just another miracle. <laughs> I survived right. it. Yeah. And then when you would graduate from a two-room school, where was the next logical path? Yeah, I was grades one to four in one room and uh, grades five to 11. Graduating grade was 11. It's now grade 12. That okay. was the second room. So when I graduated from grade 11, I uh, managed to get on to university right. by the miracle of Canada had or Newfoundland and Canada had joined together and there was a little bit of money on the go and the government was trying to get people to go into teaching because there were so few trained teachers. Huh? So they offered grants and that's the only way us and that I could get to university was by taking teacher training, right. which was uh, no, nothing else I could do, you know, except that. And that was just an accident. I ended up in teacher training and, and right. teaching. Yeah. So, John, if you're looking at a two-room school, which is effectively your elementary and your high school wrapped in together, how many pupils would you have had in each of the rooms? Well, when I was going to school, I'd say we had about 60 people or perhaps more in the two rooms, you know. And and Tilting was famous for uh, uh, in another way, for its good schools. You know, uh, we produced a number of... uh, highly reputable uh, teachers, the well-to-do planters. And these are the people who founded Newfoundland. And that's uh, something that's not readily understood or easily understood by the populace all around Newfoundland. Our original settlers were well-to-do planters who had substantial investments and fairly big schooners. And they built upon the land they used for fish production, uh, uh, extremely commodious dwellings, as the old people used to call them, and outbuildings galore. So they produced sons and daughters, and sons didn't go teaching, but they produced daughters who became uh, uh, school teachers in mm-hmm. uh, far greater proportions than any other outport community in Newfoundland. They uh, went to Littledale College in St. John's and excelled there. In fact, one of our old-time teachers graduated from Littledale College at the age of only 13. 
So we had a number of uh, women from those uh, very well-to-do planter families who were very smart, as we would call them. Wild Tilting was a fishing harbour, and Newfoundland is, is, as we said earlier, kind of known as the rock. Would there have been any agriculture on Fogo, or did everything have to be brought in? Well, now that's a, an excellent question, uh, because... Uh, Tilting was different from every other part of Fogo Island in one another way, in addition to the, its Irishness. Around Tilting, there is a substantial acreage of flat land, unlike the other communities and most of the communities around the coast. You know, agriculture is, is, a, is a humongous problem. But around Tilting, we had this flat land. And a journalist came to Fogo Island in... Uh, 1879 to write up a report for his newspaper in St. John's. And he visited Fogo first and wrote about a piece. Then he walked to Joel Bay and to Joe Bet's arm. And he said, when he rounded the rise of the hills to look down on Tilting, he got the surprise of his life. As the first thing he saw were big, healthy cattle and beautiful farms. And he was right. By the middle of the 19th century, we were getting some very good statistics from our census. And I've studied them very well. And I've discovered that tilting production of potatoes, as an example, were higher per capita than at any other place in Newfoundland. So we produced all the potatoes, turnips, and cabbage that we wanted on our fields. And they were famous for its production of those veggies. Some people added with a little extra space. Some people added onions and carrots. Mm -hmm. But there was no problem in uh, getting uh, vegetables for your dinners at any time in the year. We built substantial cellars to uh, preserve our potatoes and cabbage houses to preserve our cabbage. So you guys had very much a balanced diet. And then, you know, as you say, with, between putting in the cellars and everything else, you were very much self-sufficient. So you also mentioned then, like, you were born 1939, 10 years before Newfoundland joined Confederation. Yeah. So you are one one of the people who belonged to a country that yes. became a province. Yeah. You Were you aware when it was happening, what was happening and what it meant? No, I wasn't. But I can remember some of the campaigns and knew something was going on. But I was not aware that we were giving up independent, an independent country, an independent entity for a mere provincial status. When I did become aware of it, I became very uh, upset, annoyed and hostile to the idea of giving up our, our independence uh, constitutionally. You know, my um, father, I learned later, and my mother voted different ways in the uh, famous referenda of 1948. Uh, my father uh, did not vote for confederation, but my mother did. My grandmother always said, as was the women carried it, the women did it. <laughs> women did it, she said. The family allowances and the, uh, you know, just the, the social security net was not as impressive then as it is today, but it was a, a thousand percent better from what we had in Newfoundland. And what my grandmother said is, is basically true. You know, I think that, uh, we don't have any results on a district basis preserved of the referendum. They were all destroyed. But I'm guessing from what I have learned, I can make a judgment. It is my theory that the women voted en masse for confederation. In hindsight then, would you say that in the modern world, particularly in a global economy, that it would have been difficult for Newfoundland to sustain itself as an independent country? Uh, actually, Austin, um, you have hit on something that's been a... Uh, 
controversy since uh, 1855. How about that? The Newfoundland right. Canada cannot pay its own way. And the consensus has been since 1855 that uh, Newfoundland couldn't pay its own way. I have just completed an enormous book that I am preparing for the publisher now this week. Uh, it's a massive piece of research and undertaking over 600 pages. And one of the revolutionary things I have done is to refute the concept that Newfoundland could not pay its own way. And I proved it by evidence, by the statistics on revenue and expenditure. Um, Looking at the revenue base, I have proven it. This would be considered as a revolutionary idea that proved that Newfoundland could pay its own way. The answer is yes, uh, Newfoundland could pay its own way. In fact, we have learned since the economic historians have shown that our fishery was destroyed by Canadian neglect. If we had retained control of our fisheries, we would have done much better, but we did not. The Canadian no, government is largely to blame for the destruction of the cut fishery. I'm thinking in terms of the current global economy, where yeah. we're in an information age, we're in a technological age, we're in an age yeah. where manufacturing goes to the lowest wage yeah. price. It does for small economies and the Republic of Ireland would be somewhat similar. For small economies, it can be very difficult to survive in the global cutthroat world that's out there. And it's more in that context rather than the context of historically that Newfoundland would have been able to pay its way. But that's, things have changed so radically. Well, that has some merit, but there are two things that I would like to say about that. What is is that uh, we have become an integrated economy. You know, tariff borders practically disappeared and borders between countries have disappeared and that's one key thing to remember the second thing is this in the modern technological age especially using this medium we are now using as an example it wouldn't matter if you're in a hundred room school or a one room school you would access to all the information on earth and you can do it at home and my uh, prediction is that the school structuring as we now have it will disappear because of the kind of the medium uh, we not, we are now using, you know. That raises another interesting question, and, and I'm interested in your reflection on this. And that was for the last two years, children and adults were limited in their ability to congregate, and it was being analysed as something that was going to be detrimental in the very long term. And what was going through my head as I was hearing some of these comments was that for people who grew up in isolated communities or in small communities or who after school had to go home long distances and work on the farm or do whatever on their own, they had limited social interaction anyway or economics force that they had to contribute to the family income by working from a young age. How do you see that the society was in an isolated community during the last two years as distinct from where we've become comfortable living in cities and become far more dependent on gatherings. Well, I'm absolutely convinced it will leave a wound that will fester for some time. It will always be there. You will notice it in the old age of children who are now living through it because social interaction is so important, not for the immediate moment, but is so essential to proper brain development. So the ultimate fallout will be wounds that will be carried for a long time. The immediate fallout is that as soon as this is over, and we're nearing the end of it now, hopefully, but as soon as this is over, there will be greater interaction than ever before because people have learned a lesson during this uh, crisis that one of their most valuable cultural assets was 
opportunities to interact and socialize. They've learned how essential it was, even if they hadn't learned it already. And we knew in tilting, of course, that social interaction was absolutely essential. Now, you mentioned the word isolation there, but you changed it again, went to something else, another word instead. And that was a good trick because uh, that's another bugbear that uh, raises its head in Newfoundland interactions with uh, the mainland of Canada and outsiders about being isolated. Now, I'm going to shock you, and lots of people are going to disagree with me, but I have the evidence for what I say. There was no isolation in Newfoundland. Now, I'll give you some examples. Tilting was not isolated. Believe it or not, and I say that to everyone listening, tilting, there are probably lots of communities in Newfoundland like it too, but I'll tell you I'll get the evidence of tilting. Tilting maintained connections with Ireland. They did not stop and were not cut. I'll give you some examples. In 1820s, 67, 80, 90, and so on, not only was Newfoundland, but Tilting Harbour was carried in the newspapers of Waterford and Tipperary and Cork. I'll give an example. 1824, one of our famous captains, McDwyer, made a tremendous and startling heroic rescue of a shipwreck in the Atlantic Ocean, rescued the crew and saved them all. It was all carried in the Irish newspapers in Cork and Waterford and Southern Tipperary. 1877, there was a famous shipwreck near Tilting Harbour, just outside our harbour. 1877, of an English ore carrier. It was all carried in the news in the uh, Cork and Waterford and Wexford papers. These are just examples, but mm-hmm. uh, my great-grandfather's brother, William Green, was subject to a severe accident at the ice fields in 1833. He crushed his leg. He went to Ireland, not to St. John's, for help. For, for the hospital there. Incidentally, after he came home, he wrote a folk song about it. <laughs> 1830s, 1840s, one of our, my ancestors, Michael Burke was his name. He was over in Waterford and made all the newspaper headlines over there and in Newfoundland. He was over to Waterford because his ancestors had left a pile of money in a Waterford bank and there was a dispute about it. He went over there uh, to discuss with it. My grandmother tells me that uh, she can remember her grandfather and their big schooner leaving in the fall to go over to Ireland for a load of provisions for the winter. But new people in Tilting regularly took, subscribed to Irish newspapers in the last half of the 19th century. I found evidence of it for the 1840s and 50s and so on. In the 1840s, for instance, every man in Tilting signed O'Connell's position for repeal of the Union. Uh, uh, these are the kinds of conflicts we're going on all the time from, with til- from between Tilting and Ireland. And, of course, St. John's was in contact all the time with Ireland. You couldn't open a St. John's newspaper from 1822 when they started. You read everything about a whole page of Irish news. And every newspaper carried Irish news in the St. John's newspapers right down to the Civil War times and beyond. Right. A whole page of Irish news, English news, Scottish news, news from Europe. So this isolation business, communications-wise now, there's another part of it. That's the physical part, the transport. Well, we had our schooners. Mm-hmm. We had the biggest highway in the world right at our doorstep. Right. The Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Our schooners were traveling back and forth to St. John's on a weekly basis. Young fellows for fun just had to say, well, let's go to St. John's next week. Uh, Bill Brothers are gone. And his schooner, we climb aboard and go to St. John's. That was a, 
a common thing to be doing from uh, in our schoolers. And you could go to St. John's. Maybe you couldn't get there perhaps in December and January and February, probably three months if the ice was was uh, heavy. But there were times when they did go in September, December. I've got a record out and, and come back. Just like the woman I met from uh, one of the ports on the south coast of Newfoundland. Her father had a big schooner and I said, um, did you ever go aboard your schooner? You're a woman. Woman, she said. I spent my uh, summers, my fall, she said, touring the Mediterranean with my father. <laughs> so I dispute how this isolation and talk, you see, and yeah. say we weren't isolated. You know, it's not true. That doesn't apply. John, we're going to have to wrap up. I think I'm going to have to set up a time with you again where I'd love to get you in front of a live audience uh, somewhere in Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, at some stage in the future, I think it would be a fascinating evening. But it's been a real pleasure learning and uh, meeting and learning more of the history and the connection. And I want to thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Austin. I really enjoyed it. I'm delighted to be able to uh, chat with you. And perhaps uh, sometime soon we'll get together for coffee. Not a bad idea at all. Great to know you're in Ottawa. Thank you.